Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. This morning, I'm going to talk about the Hatfields and McCoys, a cup of tea, a doctor's visit, and Nazi Germany, all from Esther chapter 3. And as we move forward and get started, thank you all for setting your clocks and um, being here on time. Uh, If you need a copy of the scriptures, you can raise your hand and and Rick will get you one. And also I want to thank you for taking Sunday morning and making it an effort to be here. I know for many of you, this is the only day maybe that you have off that you could sleep in and you chose to be here instead. I appreciate that. I recognize that. And I really strive to make it worth your while, right? I want this to be something that is powerful in your life as well as my life. And so I pray that that is the case. And so we're in Esther chapter three, and let's read verses one through six as we start this. It says, after these things, there's a a timestamp here. There's a segment of time that we're not sure about. After chapter two to chapter three, there's a period of time. After these things, King Assyrius promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadathiah, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. The king and also commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, he told Haman in order, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. As it starts off after these things, again, we're noticing a chronology of events that are taking place. And we've talked about this each week. We we see the chronos, that linear time that's taking place. It's a measurable time. But then we're going to see throughout the story the, the kairos. Kairos is not just linear. It's situational. There are events that mark time and important events in time that can't be put in just that linear 
phase. Uh, Kronos is quantitative. Kairos is qualitative. Kronos is measured in minutes. Kairos is measured in moments. Kronos is finite, specific, but Kairos is infinite. In other words, it has impact that goes far past that specific moment. And, And we're seeing that take place throughout the story, and we see it take place here. One of the things that we notice here is that the king, Xerxes or Ahasuerus as it's pronounced in some translations, promotes Haman the Agagite. And it's really important that we see that it names him the Agagite. It's there for a reason, the son of Hamadatha. We saw in chapter 2, verse 5, similar thing was mentioned about Mordecai. It said, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimea, and son of Kish. These names to us, or to me, are just hard to pronounce. But to us, they usually have not a whole lot of meaning to it, but it's very significant in this period of time. And it's going to go back generations because there is a lot of history involved with these two people and where they come from. You know, we have kind of folklore in our own history. We know of the Hatfields and McCoys. You know, whenever there's a group of people that are fighting, we always say, man, it's like this feud, the Hatfields and McCoys. And they were real people. This is a picture. I don't know which ones are which. I know the one on the left there with the dark beard. That was William Anderson Hatfield. He was known as Devil Ants. That was his name, right? I know. And he later became a follower of Jesus, by the way. And then the other guy, his name was Randolph Old Rennell McCoy. Okay? These are the guys. Now, there was a feud that went on, and it's not certain what instigated, but it has to do a lot with their businesses. Uh, They were both in the Confederate army, except for one of the sons who they considered a traitor. And then there was, you know, them marrying people from the other family that caused hostilities. And so there was this going on for about 30 years of this fight between these two families. And it became again, folklore where the Hatfields and McCoys are kind of this notorious battle between these two families. Well, something similar is happening here with Haman and with Mordecai. See, back in Exodus chapter 17, as the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, the Amalekites attacked them and they started picking them off from the back. They started kind of, the people who were straggling behind, they started killing them. And so they were attacking them, but very, you know, sinister. They were kind of not up front. We're going to have a battle. They just as they would be marching, those who were staying behind, they would wipe them out. And so there is a big battle that takes place where Moses is raising his hands. And as long as his hands are raised, they're having victory over the Amalekites. And then when his hands are lowered, then they are showing victory. And so they have some people raising his hands and God is victorious. And and God makes this statement that I am going to forever be against the Amalekites. I'm going to wipe them out. And he tells Moses, write it in a book. You need to write that I'm against the Amalekites and put it in the book. And so it's recorded that God is against these people. And then comes King Saul. King Saul comes in there and then the prophet Samuel says, hey, you need to do your job as king. You need to wipe out these people because they're against us and you need to fight against them. And so then he's given this instruction to totally annihilate the people. Right? Animals, men, women, and children. 
Now, just for the moment, let's set aside this idea of ethnic cleansing and how horrific it is and how our minds think about that. At least mine does. I imagine some of yours does too. Just to put that aside for the moment of this story, it was a very barbaric time and this is how they understood God to be instructing them at this time. But what happens is Saul does not do what was commanded and he brings back all the the choice flock and the spoils, and he even brings the king Agag, which is where we get Haman the Agagite. And so we see this history going way back to where the Amalekites were killing the Israelites. The Israelites started killing the Amalekites, wiped out King Agag because Samuel later kills him. And there is this constant going back and forth. In fact, it's an Amalekite who kills King Saul when he doesn't kill himself quite completely. And he ends up putting him to death, telling King David he was dying and I put him out of his misery and then David kills him. Again, it's a brutal time. I always read that story and said, that's just not right. That was kind of a mean thing. The guy was trying to be, I think, good, but it doesn't matter. And so we're seeing this tension that's taking place between these two groups, and it's been going on for a long time. If Mordecai is a descendant of Saul and Haman a descendant of King Agag, then they have brought this ancient feud now to Persia, and it's personal. And so now when Mordecai is standing, he's standing against Haman, but he's also standing against this history. When Haman sees Mordecai, he's enraged, not just because of this one man, because of the history of this family. And we see that this tension starts to build up and that these people start to become very egocentric and starting to see only what is enraging them or what is convicting them. Why didn't... Haman kneel. I mean, why didn't Mordecai kneel to Haman? Abraham kneeled before different people. Daniel kneeled before people. What was it that caused him to stand and defy him? I don't know. I just wonder. That's all I'm doing is just wondering here if maybe this family feud has something to do with this stubbornness and wanting to not give in to someone who he considered a long-term enemy. I wonder how much that played into this role. And have you ever been in a state of mind where you are so set in your ways that you really can't see anything else? Anyone? No? Okay, the five of you, thank you for making me feel better. (laughs) It, It happens to us, right? There is this old proverb about this professor from the West going into the Far East trying to find out information from some of these ancient Japanese nobles and their belief system. And and as he's there, he doesn't understand their ways, their beliefs, and he he keeps being kind of confrontational. Well, why would you do that? Why would you do this? And as he's talking to them, and there it is, the 
the person who is serving him tea is pouring the cup and he's filling the tea and he's filling the tea. It starts to overflow and he just keeps pouring it and pouring it and pouring it. And the professor says, uh, excuse me, it's overflowing. The, the, there's too much. You're pouring too much into the tea. You need to stop. And he goes, you know, it's interesting when there's too much in us, we are not allowed to be filled with anything else. And he was conveying to him the fact that you think you know all that you need to know. And so you are unwilling to know anything more. Haman is enraged and all he sees is someone who is defiling his authority. And that's all he sees. He's blinded by this anger. He's blinded by this rage. And perhaps we don't know. It doesn't give us a detailed account of what's happening with Mordecai. But perhaps... The reason he's standing is because he's also blinded by the anger that is there from all this time in history. And and it just keeps developing and and going on and on. It it could be that it was Mordecai's conviction that I I need to stand up for what I believe in and I don't want to bow to the pagan rule of Haman, but we don't know. We don't know what it could be. But it says that Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. It wasn't enough to deal with Mordecai. He wanted to kill all the Jews. And again, we're seeing this extreme belief, right? Remember in in chapter 1, when Queen Vashti would not go to be paraded by the king, they put a, a, a law down that said all the women needed to submit to their husbands and listen to their husbands. It wasn't enough that Vashti just got dealt with. We had all the women. Otherwise, all the women are going to be rebelling against all the men. It's going to be chaos, dogs and cats living together. It's just going to be unreal, right? They had to deal with this, but they always go to the extreme. And again, once again, we see how it is our tendency when something enrages us, we want to go to the extreme. We have to make sure everything is under control because when we start losing control, we fear that we will never get it back. And so here is Haman. I want to destroy all the Jews. Again, we see another Kronos timestamp. In verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr. Meow. That is the cast loss. Just what a name. Before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month and after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. This is divination. They're they're casting lots. That's their way of saying, is this the right time? So day after day, month after month, they're casting these lots to try and see when is the time to present this before the king to present this notion to the king that we need to wipe out all the Jews. And so he has some people there that are doing this divination, casting lots, and it's kind of rolling the dice. Let's see, is it a good time? No, it's not a good time. Waiting. The determination and patience for a full year of waiting to see when is the right time to wipe out this entire people. And finally, they roll the dice and it comes up snake eyes or double sixes or whatever the lots are that says now is the time. And so then Haman goes in verse eight and said to the king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people. Notice he doesn't mention them by name. He doesn't say they're these Jews. 
He wants to keep it vague because maybe the king likes some of the Jews. You know, he goes to one of the bakeries down there and gets, you know, the bagels or something. And he's like, I like these, so I don't want to kill, you know, this guy because he makes good food. He keeps it general. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. That's about three tons. Of silver, just to give you an idea. It's a lot of silver, right? Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it is, seems good to do. That signet ring represented the king's authority. It was a ring that would stamp either wax or clay to show the king's approval. And so the king is basically giving Haman the authority to do and carry this out. Whatever you have in mind, go ahead. I'm giving you permission because he paints the picture one that this is going to benefit you. And isn't that how people usually paint things, right? If you have kids, don't they come up to you and tell you why it's good that they should finish the candy? that they got from Halloween so it doesn't spoil. You don't want rotten candy sitting around your house, right? So let's let's make sure that it's all gone and I'll help you make sure it's all gone. I mean, they have a way of spinning things to make it sound good. I'm sure my kids all could have been lawyers if they would have applied themselves at some point. They knew just how to manipulate things so well. Well, that's what we see happening here. Haman is manipulating the story so that it would be to his advantage And because he has the ear to the king, because he has the king's approval, the king gives him the ring and says, okay, it's yours. And what we see here is happening that it's very unique and dangerous time for the children of Israel. Whenever you go to the doctors, which is always a lot of fun, They will ask you your name, but then they also ask you for something else, right? What do they ask usually if you're going to get a prescription? They ask for your birthday, right? Because they need to make sure you're not another person. See, I have a son who has my name, and I don't want his prescription, and he doesn't want mine, right? And and so if I go there, they'll ask me my name and they'll ask me when I was born to make sure that they've got the right person. The same thing's true with airlines. If you're getting a reservation for air ticket for an airline, they'll ask you your name and then they'll ask you your birth date. My daughter has the exact same name as my daughter-in-law. My daughter-in-law's name was Lauren. She married my son, Daniel. They both have the name Lauren Scotty. So if they're flying together, they want to know which Lauren Scotty it is. Right? What's the birthday? One of my nieces knows them as 
white Lauren because my daughter's got blonde hair. My daughter and the other one, black Lauren, because she has black hair. That's how she identified them because they have the same name. So we got to give them this distinction, try and clarify things. That's setting them apart. You see, the children of Israel had something that set them apart. Their laws are not like our laws. Their beliefs are not like our beliefs. And because they were in exile, they didn't have a country. They didn't have a temple that they would go to and worship. What they had is their belief system that was basically the law of Moses, the Torah. And that was something that held these people together. It set them apart from everyone else. It was a common complaint during during Israel's exile. We see it also in Ezra and we see it in Daniel. These people have their own way of living That's different than ours. And whenever there's something different from us, we usually assume that it must be wrong because we must be right. The way we do things usually is pleasing to us. In a pagan world without a nation state to call home, the Jews maintained their identity by adhering to the Torah. It protected them from melting into the Persian or other cultures and totally disappearing. It's what held them together. And God made this distinction when he separated his people from the other nations. He gave them their unique identity as his own. They were supposed to be set apart. I have chosen you. But remember, the whole purpose wasn't so that they could be exclusive, so that they could be inclusive and be an example of what God wanted to do. This was the strength of their identity through this time. But it would also become the weakness that we see in the New Testament because God would be offering them a new identity through his son. And the law did its job to keep them separated from the pagan nations. But now something more has come, something better. The new law needed to push them back in to the world. And so Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so there's still supposed to be something unique, but it's a new command. This is something new. And the whole purpose of God's command was to keep the people to a place where they could represent him. But then when that law was run its course, Jesus comes in and he says, I have a new command. I want you to love each other. This isn't about you being exclusive. This is about me using you to reach the world. And that's what we see taking place. This kingdom that Jesus comes to establish, the kingdom of God, is not going to be established by force. It's not going to be the Hatfields and McCoys. We're not going to wipe out every person and they're going to come and wipe us back out. Things have changed. Things are supposed to change. Matthew 26, verse 52, Jesus says, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so now this new identity is one that is seen in meekness. It's one that's seen in charity. It's one that is seen in compassion. It's one that spreads by how they care for one another. And you see, now this is supposed to be our identity as followers of Christ. 
We are supposed to have this new law that we adhere to, that we walk. Because we are told, too, that we are to, to be unique. We are to be separate. Right? That we are to present ourselves holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable form of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But, but so oftentimes, what happens is we try to be different and that becomes our whole purpose. And when you try to be different just for different sake, you become weird. That's just how it is, right? Pretty soon, your people who don't connect to the culture around you. And they look at you and they go, why are you stuck in some ancient past or the twilight zone, right? You, you just do not connect to us in any way we're reacting to the world and not responding to God. You see, we're supposed to be unique not because we're reacting and staying away. We're supposed to be unique because we're responding to God and we're reaching out. And now we stand out, but it's because we care. You see, the early church made such an impact on the unbelieving world because of how they cared. So in that time when the church was being birthed, when the first century believers were coming into this understanding of God and his love for them, they were showing this love towards others. And so you've got a Roman culture where it's very patriarchal and you need a son to carry on your lineage. And if you cannot afford to have too many children and all you have is daughters, you discard them because you need the son to carry on the line. And so the women are being discarded. And the Christians are stepping in and raising them as their children. And that's leaving an impression on those people. They're saying, well, you're taking our responsibility. You are showing kindness to the widows, to the orphans, to those who have been discarded. They have now been brought into a home. And so now you've got all these people who are being loved and raised in this And it's having an impact on the world around them. See, God inserts himself in the middle of every social environment so that he can have a voice in that environment. And he's going to do the same thing here. And, And then we see... It goes on and it says, if it pleases the king, it's a repeated phrase. We saw that in chapter one. If it pleases the king, make this decree about all the women so that they will do this. If it pleases the king, he repeats this, then let's blot out these people. It's another element that turns the plot. And as the king's ring is given to them, a new law is commanded to seize these people, the Jews, and their possessions It just gives it an added incentive. Very similar to what happened in Nazi Germany. Right? How many billions of dollars were taken from the Jewish people and then invested even in the Swiss bank accounts? They're still paying back some of the money that was taken from that time. And it was incentive. So now you've got the neighbors spying on them saying, oh, you're Jewish? Okay, well, if you're Jewish, then maybe I can take your stuff for myself because I really like that toaster, right? I really want that 
artwork. I really want whatever it is that they have, they start eyeballing it and they say, well, I can have that. And it starts to become an incentive against these people. We see in verse 12, he goes on, he says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over the provinces and the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king, Arasaras, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews. That kind of cracks me up. It's not enough to destroy. It's not enough to kill and annihilate, and then we're going to kick them in the shins, right? It's like, we're just going to do them in and do them in again and It's like this is to the extreme. Once again, we see that. Young and old, women and children. And one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Women and children. Men, women, and children. Doesn't that remind you of what had happened back then? Maybe this is repeating what had happened. And we see this repetition that's going on here to plunder their goods. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. We see again this contrast. The king and Haman are relaxing. They're having a drink and the city is in confusion. What is going on? There is about to be some major killing going on and everyone's freaking out except the king and Haman are relaxing. Once again, we see the king is drinking a lot. We we see that there's this constant reference to drink and lots of it. Why is he drinking? Well, he's the king. He can. He can drink whenever he wants. But you see, when people abuse alcohol, it's for a reason. It's trying to deal with something. There is one counselor who does not call things addiction. She calls them self-medication trying to medicate ourselves. You see, the king is constantly out of control, but constantly wanting to be in control. And now drinking is his way of medicating himself to feel that he has control. And we see in this time, these things are going really crazy and out of control the king just resigns, gives his authority to someone else who really isn't a good person because he can't deal with it. How do we deal with it? How do we deal with tragedies when things happen that are beyond our control, when we get into the state of panic What should we do when disaster befalls us? What would happen if in our lives, instead of moving from this place in panic, 
if we move from a panic urgency to a, a meditative mandate where we take the chronos time that's happening and that's making us panic and try and make a moment where we actually connect to what God wants to do in that moment in our lives. When I'm doing dog training and I've got a dog that's anxious, a a dog that's got a lot of nervous behavior, maybe aggressive behavior, one of the foundational things that I do is teaching the dog to do nothing. I call it mandatory meditation. You lay down and you do nothing. And I make the dog lay down starting at 30 minutes. So the dog panics when someone comes in the house. Who is this guy? I don't know who this guy is. The dog's barking, freaking out, right? Oh, who are you? Get out of my house. The dog's having a little panic attack. Down. Forcing the dog to lay down and do nothing makes the dog have to relax in that environment. And I've got dogs that are, no kidding, shaking, holding themselves. They're like, is that okay? It's like, well, that's normal. For a dog that's used to doing all these other things to have to do nothing, this is what happens. It's like an addict, right? It's like, I got to bark, I got to bark. No, you can't bark. You got to just chill out. And then pretty soon you start seeing the dog's eyes get heavy. Right? It's just sitting there, and pretty soon it just drops its head. It wears itself out, holding itself and doing nothing. What would happen if we wore out that anxious energy by stopping that crazy train that we're on and just focus on the God and what this moment is about, how he is present with us here? What would happen if we got off that train and said, I'm going to... Make this, instead of a a Kronos moment, a Kairos moment where God is present and I'm aware of his presence. And that takes willful application. It doesn't just happen. At least it doesn't with me. Maybe it does with you. Oh, here's one of those panic moments. Good, I'm going to just be still. Not me. I'm panicking. I'm calling the bank. I'm calling the police, whatever the situation is, right? I'm making phone calls trying to resolve these things. What would happen If I paused and I called my heavenly father who cares and loves me and is at work in all things. And even though this is about to become a devastating moment, we see that God is present even though he's not mentioned. And again, he's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. We don't see his name come up at all. So many times I feel like that's the case in my life. I don't hear his voice. I I don't see him. He doesn't seem to be there, but his fingerprints are all over it. And he shows up in these moments. We need to see God in the moments and not just try and manipulate the minutes. And what seems like the beginning of the end in this story here is actually the transition of a whole new beginning. And what would happen in our own lives if we, instead of panicking, focusing on these problems, generalizing things into extremes, allowed God to be a part of this? I have known people who have suffered just incredible, unbelievable evil 
from the hands of friends, family, people, and yet their lives continue on. See, we're not even halfway through this story, and it looks like it's about to end, but it's not. I don't know where you are in your story. It might look like it's about to end. This is the end of what I can see. Not. You need to step away from the panic. Get out of that Kronos mindset and see a Kairos moment is able to happen that changes everything for you. Because God is still there. I want to end with a passage of scripture in Isaiah. Isaiah 54, verse 16 and 17, it says, Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and shall refute, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. See, God knows. I know about the smith who's making those weapons. I I know about the person who uses them. But they're not going to succeed against you. What their intention is to destroy won't happen. Oh, it may knock you down. It may put you on your knees. But you see, I have a destiny for you. Remember, we talked about and saw that the history or the memory of who they were, the people of God, and who we are, the children of God, the destiny we are here to bring about the kingdom of God produces in us an identity, the people of God. Let's allow that to shape us in the times of crisis. Let's pray. Father, I love this story and how it leaves us hanging so many times, how the author tips his hat but doesn't reveal all his cards. And having read it, of course, Lord, we know how things play out. But at what seems a devastating point in the history of an entire people is actually a transition where some way and somehow things change. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning who is in maybe that type of situation with their lives. There is a time of panic, a time of stress, a time of worry, a time where they don't know how they're going to move forward. God, I pray that they would, instead of turning to drink or turning to self-medication instead of turning to to panic or instead of turning to anger and, and trying to bring about vengeance or that they would turn to you and bring peace within their own heart and their own soul that they would allow you to quiet them in this situation that they would move from the minutes that are taking place to the moments that you are there and involved. And through their seeking you, may they not only produce peace in their own hearts, but may they produce 
an example to their family, to their children, to their friends, to the world of how we can behave when it looks like the world is ending, how we can love when people have ridiculed, how we can show that there is a new commandment, that we follow a new law, that we are your people. And this is how we live because we belong to you. Help us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. May the love of God be written in your heart. And may you not give in to the minutes of panic make a mandate of meditation where you will see and know that he is good be still and know that he is God God bless you guys have a wonderful week see you next week see you Wednesday God bless you guys you have been listening to the Genesis podcast we invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings you can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.